If you have a Bible or, as I said before, if you want to uh, look on at the, it, the uh, handout that has the passage printed, we're in Proverbs chapter 30 today. Word of where we've been, where we're going, we're going to uh, wrap up Proverbs, our study of Proverbs next week with uh, a look at Proverbs 31, particularly um, the familiar passage of, um, of the, the excellent or the godly wife that's presented there. Uh, wives, it's not only, or husbands, it's not only a, a sermon for wives and those who are not married, it's not only a sermon for those who are married. So it'll be a, a good way to wrap it up. And then that'll begin, December will begin our Advent uh, series that will look at a few of the passages looking at the, uh, um, the hope under the title with the, the hymn, The Weary Soul Rejoices um, uh, from the familiar Christmas hymn. Today, we'll go from looking at one verse last week to a whole chapter. It's a chapter that isn't easily broken up. It's written by a different author, Agur, uh, the son of Jacob, who we, we know very little about uh, this man, perhaps an Ishmaelite who was a descendant of uh, uh, the son of Abraham, Ishmael, um, but not, not for sure by any means. And, and yet he provides uh, just this beautiful poem work of art uh, on, on wisdom itself. Let me not give any more words of introduction, but read this, uh, this poem and behold its beauty. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, 
to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb. The land never satisfied with water. And the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave, when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maid servant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster. The he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth, for pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word, this word, stands forever. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May we behold the beauty of your word. May we behold the beauty of who you are and see a little bit more through this, this poem, this passage today. The words of Agur. And may they become our words as well. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.
A few months ago, I was sitting in a class just uh, with a, a church history professor whom I respect and, uh, and admire and have really appreciated his work, but something stood out in the class. He was commenting about art and not liking modern art. It's abstract. Abstract art, that is. It doesn't reflect oftentimes the things that we see. And I could relate a little bit with his uh, dislike of abstract art and certainly in past years or in past parts of my life found it more difficult to appreciate. But I've come to appreciate it more in part because I know that the artist almost always, there are some exceptions, almost always has something, a purpose that they're trying to communicate. Now whether that's a good purpose or an ill-founded purpose is another question, but there's always purpose in the art, but it takes a little bit more time to come to the appreciation of what the artist is communicating. Sometimes we just need to sit before the art to see the intricacies, the complexities, the apparent contradictions, the difficulties that are in life that sometimes are not visible in just the things that we see and can observe. The beauty of creation depicted by some artists is marvelous. Photography or even artists' renderings of landscapes are beautiful. But they never can capture all of the detailed intricacies of each individual leaf. They can never capture what's going on inside the tree's trunk and the life that exists below the ground. There's always more around us in in a person's life or in even the nature around us than what the eye can see, than what we can observe. And when we come to God... It's right and good to come to places where we say, I can't fully understand. I don't have this one completely nailed down. And this poem, with its lists of three things, or rather four, is one that we can never quite figure entirely out. And that's okay. For certain things may jump out at us at different times in our lives. It calls for us to sit down and just spend minutes or even hours beholding the artist's work. To see and to hear the voice of God in its intricacy and complexities. The overarching purpose of this poem is that the, 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 the writer and the hearer understands his or her position in relation to God. It has familiar echoes with other wisdom works. Job and Ecclesiastes in particular identify and recognize that we are so small compared to God. That our wisdom is nothing compared to God. That we can identify with the author when he says, I am weary, O God. 
I'm worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. It echoes the words of Job as he wrestles through the, 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 the terrible tragedies that have befallen him and his family, where he's lost everything, his, his, uh, his family, his property, his own health. And yet in Job 28, he can say, but from where then does wisdom come? From where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. And then God, speaking to Job later in chapter 38, says, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action, Job, like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? And what were its bases sunk? The poem that we've read today from Proverbs chapter 30 is probably confusing. I had to read it more times than I read most passages, multiple times through before I started to feel like I had some grasp of what the author was getting at. I think some of the heart of the message is found in verses 11 through 14. Will you look at those with me? 11 through 14, where there's a description that each of them starts for Four people, four groups of people. There are those, each verse begins. In the Hebrew, quite literally, it's, it's, there's a generation or, or a generation, a group of people or even descendants of a people, continuing some of the theme of the family and the, the son who, who doesn't respect his, his parents, his father and mother, and what that does to societal units and the family unit, and even, even to our relationship with God himself. He says, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty in their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. The common thread is that there are those who assume that they are more than what they really are. They're prideful. They neglect their relationships. More than that, they abuse others, fathers and mothers, the poor and the needy. They view themselves as better than others and without sin. These four themes, by the way, carry on into the poems. Not necessarily a one-for-one, one, and that's part of the complexity and part of the beauty. There's not a symmetry in all of this poem, but there doesn't need to be a symmetry in all of poetry. 
for life and creation is often asymmetrical. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Now look down at verse 15. Three things are never satisfied. Four never says enough. And then verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. As if to interpret the four things, the three, no, four things that represent the never being satisfied but can be seen most clearly in a child who says to a parent or parents, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't love you. I wish you were dead. And of course, it finds its clear outworking in the story that Jesus tells of the parable of two sons, a prodigal son and the older son. And the prodigal son says to his father, I don't need you giving me my inheritance. And yet the older son proves to not truly love his father either in not seeing the opportunity to bring the younger son back in the hardness of his heart. It's a challenging thing because I think we live in a time and place where our relationship with parents is strained where counselors probe the depths of our childhood to identify places where we had conflict with our parents or things that they may have done to us unintentionally, usually, but quite severely oftentimes driving wedges between us and our parents. Not to say that parents are perfect and don't make mistakes and that your parents haven't made mistakes. But here the challenge that comes from Agar particularly in that of how you view a father and mother. Scorn them and then tie it back to this theme of dissatisfaction or even ambition or selfish ambition at times. And the idea of, is anything ever enough? Do you remember a time in your childhood like me where you you can see yourself in somebody else's home and saying, I wish I had their life. I want something that I don't have. I'd like to live in this house. And it's not always the better house. A lot of times people grow up in very nice houses and yet they go to a very modest house and they say, I wish I had this family. I wish I had something that I don't have. And the poem, the four things, the three things, no four that never say Enough. Help us to identify how that type of ambition, how that type of desire never can be satisfied. How much is enough? When will we catch up with our neighbor? Four things, he says, three things, no four. That form of the poem, it's not always the case, but typically it points us a little bit more to the last thing. It's a common structure in the ancient world and in, in, uh, in biblical poetry and in the Bible. I won't go into the details of it, but it, it does typically point us to the last thing. We'll see that. 
But look at those four things just as an example. What are the four things that are never satisfied? And as we look at them, think about it in your heart. What are the things in your heart that are never satisfied? Now, the first one is Sheol, which is the place of the dead. It's literally the grave. It's not necessarily hell, the place of eternal judgment. It's the place of the dead, the grave. Always, every day, a new group is born and a new group dies. Death is never satisfied. It keeps on taking. All of us will face it unless Jesus returns before we die. And yet, paired with that, is this hope of life, of birth. And the pain experienced by one who can't conceive. The barren womb. The hope of life, the desire for that, and yet the frustration of it. The hope of life eternal, and yet the frustration that's brought by Sheol. The pain that's associated with not having enough. The same thing, a similar thing is true with the land never satisfied with water. The last two are paired in this way. The land never satisfied with water and and quite literally a forest fire that never says enough. It just keeps raging. An unconsumable fire or a fire that's consuming a city. Unquenchable fire, not a controlled fire. And the land, like the woman who can't conceive, desires to have water so that life can spring out of it. And yet it has no ability to produce it itself. The frustration of the things that are outside of our control. Some things are good desires. Some things are destructive desires. And yet our desire is such a strong thing. We've looked at that in the study of Proverbs that it shapes our lives. It shapes who we want to be. And this example of cursing fathers and mothers or even cursing God is a very tangible barometer measurement of how satisfied we are in life. The second verse 12 there There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Ties in again with the second of the list of four things. Look with me first at verse 20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong is an expression, a very tangible expression of those who are clean in their own eyes. Eyes but not washed at all. The adulteress goes and commits adultery and then has no feeling of conscience, no concept that she's done something wrong. The adulterer is equally guilty in the act, in the story of, um, uh, of Tamar and, and Judah and uh, the attempt of Judah to, to convict Tamar is, is, is the, the best example of that in the scriptures. Is not uh, against 
women in some way, but just an example. But this is the danger of a pride and a, a haughtiness and arrogance. That we can come to a place in our lives where we treat our sin as if it was, I've done nothing wrong. I let my sin get the best of me and I walk away feeling justified. Now this one, this poem gets a little bit more difficult to understand, a little bit difficult, more difficult to, uh, to appreciate. And there, there are all kinds of uh, interesting interpretations of, of this. Let me read the poem and, and, and tell you how I think this, this, uh, this, this ties very directly into um, this example of the adulteress or the one who thinks they're clean in their own eyes or they're clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. Let me read it. The way, there are three things too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. In the way of a man with a virgin. It's interesting to hear some of the interpretations, and I'm not going to go into all the interpretations. I think it is actually more clear than what we might like to think to see that the thing that is consistent with all of these things. The fourth being a little bit more complex, a little bit more difficult to understand, is that these things are in their natural element. The first two are animals. The third one is something created, a ship. Kind of interesting, the passage we read earlier for confession about, or the call to worship about the uh, the ships being created um, things. A whole another interesting topic. But the, the eagle... The serpent, the ship, if they're not in their natural element, in the air, on the rock, on the sea, they're not experiencing, you can't see the gracefulness of the way that they were designed to to operate. A ship on land may be a good place to have repairs, but its beauty is on the sea. An eagle perched in the tree may be beautiful, but how much more beautiful when its wings are spread and it is enjoying its natural element. The serpent, even on the rock, I was just outdoors a a few weeks ago and jumped over a rattlesnake that uh, didn't appreciate me much. It was not very comfortable because it was tucked under the rock instead of on the rock. It was in a position of weakness and it let me know that it thought it was strong, but it was not. I still was scared. The last one is a little bit more complex because anyone who's married and experienced the complexity or the the difficulty, the ungracefulness of the first night with your spouse would say that doesn't seem like a natural element until, until you compare it with the way of the adulteress. Who may be more graceful in the bed But in the way of life and how life has been designed to be enjoyed and blessed by God, 
is quite unnatural. It wreaks havoc in culture and in families. It's not just a matter of the individual whom she harms, but she harms many people, as does the adulterer. For the natural place that God designed between a husband and a wife is to be in a relationship, an intimate relationship together. It's a beautiful thing. And when we take and we take things that are beautiful and put them in a different context, put an eagle in a cage or a serpent under the rock in a position of weakness or a ship in a dry dock or a person in an adulterous relationship, we undermine the beauty that God has created us for, the, the, the design, the beautiful, intricate design that he's made us for. Go back to verse 13. There are those how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. And also 14, interestingly, they combine these. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. You have here both the arrogant, the proud, the prideful, and the abuser, the harmer, the user. And again, look toward the end, all the way to verse 32, and you hear these two things demonstrated. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself in your pride, arrogance, or if you have been devising evil, abusing others for your own gain, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. That last line, I'm going to let you behold a little bit more and try to figure out. I don't have a good thing there, except, except that the instruction is to silence yourself in your arrogance. To stop devising plans with others. For it's a dangerous place to be. It's a place that you put yourself in the position of God. And you end up using others. And when you use others, there's no way for you to love or be loved by others. Look at verse 15 there briefly. The leech, the horse leech. A horse leech was a known thing in this part of the world in this time. As the horses would bend down to drink, the leech would crawl up into its nose or some other part of it, latch on with one part, and suck its blood with another part. The two extensions being like two daughters that say, Give, give. Or in the words of Eugene Peterson, gimme and gimme more. The leech is the opposite of godliness. The leech is the person that no one likes. The leech is the person 
was also oftentimes filled with fear. Filled with fear of not having enough. Like they need to get something from somebody else or else they will, they will die. The prayer of verse 7 through 9 is the only prayer found in the book of Proverbs. It's an antidote to this type of fear. It's an antidote to those who would abuse their power and their knowledge and wisdom for their own selfish gain. It's a prayer that we should each commit to memory and pray on a regular basis. Draw a box around it right now so that it reminds you to commit this one to memory. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not before me, or before I, not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, on the one hand, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, profane the name of my God. The next three groupings address this, these issues surrounding not being satisfied with who God has made us to be. Desiring something else in a way in a way that leads us away from God, in a way that leads us away from enjoyment in life. Under three things, verse 21, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. I think this one's the most difficult because some of these things sound like things that we want for someone, right? They, they would leave their station in life. They would escape the places that, that, may, uh, that may hold them down. The Bible doesn't, we have to go to other places in the Bible to understand the context of this. The story of Aladdin is a familiar one. We just watched the new movie with our kids of a, a slave, a servant, or a, a poor beggar anyway. A poor beggar who becomes king is a beautiful story. It's not an unfamiliar story in the Bible. King David was not poor, but he was the least, the smallest of all the brothers and the youngest of all the brothers, and yet God chose him. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 52, 53, describes the Savior, the Messiah, the suffering servant who had become the king of all of creation. God himself become king as having no beauty in himself. Nothing that people would look on him, behold, and say, yes, that's a king. Wasn't tall, dark, and handsome like Saul, King Saul was before King David? And yet God chooses the weak in this world to shame the strong. God shows that foolish things in this world are more wise than the wisdom of this world. And yet the warning of this is someone who has never trained to become a king. Someone who has never fought off the beast as King David did. Or suffered 
as Jesus did, is oftentimes woefully ill-equipped to serve a people as a king. The fool, when he's had his fill of food or has all the money, is encouraged to just continue his folly. He has no reason to change his ways. The drug addict, when he has a windfall, almost always blows it on substance abuse because he has nothing to control himself, to contain himself. Oftentimes the places that we experience weakness and suffering in life are the places that God is calling to us and saying, come, follow me. Those places that Jesus called to his disciples who were not wise in this world, not learned, not powerful, not wealthy, fishermen, tax collectors who were hated. And yet he says, I will make you fishers of men. I will turn what is foolish in this world and use it for something that is great. The unloved woman is probably the most difficult to read, the most harmful, and I'm not quite sure why they've translated that as this, but this woman, Eugene Peterson, describes as quite literally the whore. It's a harsh word, and I mean no disrespect by it, but what is that? What is that? It's, it's, it's the unlovable woman who has chosen to find her satisfaction in a number of sexual partners and yet has never experienced an intimacy with somebody that she actually desires. And as much as we want to see that person experience redemption and restoration, if that person immediately finds a husband or you can flip this away around the 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 uh, the, the, the man who is is uh, is all kinds of words to describe it. I won't use any of those words. The well, I've used whore, the gigolo, the whatever the man is. When he actually gets married, when she actually gets married, he or she is in no place to actually begin a marriage. Almost always, the marriage is self-destruct. For hard, difficulties arise in the marriage, and it seems like the out is the affair. Now, if you've been there and experienced that in your life in the past, know that there is redemption, but the answer is not simply to get married. Just as the answer to uh, sexual sins and, and struggles is not simply to get married. It doesn't lessen that. It may quench it for a time, but it doesn't lessen that. The answers, the answers are to return to God and experience the redemption that he works in us, to seek out his wisdom, to understand what faithfulness and wisdom is in life, to enter into a marriage, not in a place of perfection, which when we look at Proverbs 31 next week, we're all going to read that male and female and think, I do not measure up to those things. But that we would be on a trajectory toward spiritual maturity, relational maturity, emotional maturity, 
that enables us to be in relationship that produces health and fosters health, that has tools to resolve conflict and to resolve difficulties that are not escape mechanisms. One of the most fascinating stories we've read recently as a family is called The Tale of Despero, a story of mice and rats in a palace. And one of the characters in it is quite literally a maidservant who is wanting to become the princess. And she becomes the maidservant of the princess. And part of the story, the sub-story, is her desiring that and doing all kinds of foolish things to be that. And of course, she's ill-equipped just as the uh, slave would be to be king. She's ill-equipped for that. But the number of things and problems that she causes along the way in her attempt is manifold, is, is, is incredibly immense and becomes manifold. Now, part of what's hidden in the language here is actually that the maidservant takes the husband of the mistress, steals a husband, much as a secretary oftentimes does, sadly, with a boss or many other types of places that it happens. These places where we may want something for somebody who needs something And yet, the desire for something else wreaks all kinds of havoc in all kinds of places around us. Verse 24, another set of things goes on to describe the things that may seem insignificant if you think that the slave or the maidservant is insignificant that your role in your job, whatever it is, is insignificant. These four things are meant to be a reminder that God uses the things that seem small in our world to do great things. Four things on earth are small, and yet they are exceedingly wise. Using anthropomorphic language, poetic language, the ants are a people not strong, Yet they provide their food in the summer. Proverbs earlier describe that work of the ants. that are storing up for the winter. They're planning ahead. They're using wisdom. The rock badgers or perhaps the marmot type animals. They're, they're not mighty. They're small. And yet they have found a place of security in the cliffs. The locusts, they have no king, but quite literally, they take over a field as if they were marching in rank and can destroy with a power of an army. And even the lizard finds its way sneakily into the palace, as I'm sure lizards have found their way into many of your homes, past the most guarded, the most secure places in all of a country, the king's palaces, and yet they can get through. The last poem is the one, again, that I still need to behold and look at to understand more. But these things are contrasted with the smaller things in a way to affirm that sometimes the might is right. The king is good. The lion is powerful, the mightiest among beasts. And perhaps C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his famous Chronicles of Narnia, 
was looking at this, this poem, this passage. For it does represent Christ himself in his good kingly power. For not all who have power are evil or cause harm. And yet you have two other things that seem to just strut. You know, they have the walk, but they have no power within them. The strutting rooster and the he-goat. Can't imagine anyone looking at either of these as symbols of power. And again, with the three things pointing to the fourth, as the most significant is the king. The king who has the support of his army because he's a good leader. The king who is powerful because he is a good king, a servant king, one who leads well. It is the culminating place of this passage and it points us most auspiciously to the work of Christ who is that powerful king who has fulfilled and defined and identified himself with verse 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. He is the one, perhaps even in verse 5, that we're, we're pointing, or excuse me, for end of verse 4, pointing forward to what is his name and what is his son's name? The Son of God is the King who rules over us in this good way, demonstrating for us how to avoid arrogance, taking the position even of a servant, being born in a manger. Suffering as the worst of humans do, or the most, not worst, but the, the people in the worst positions in humanity have suffered. Fleeing for his own life, being pursued even to the point of death, death on a shameful cross. Honoring his father and mother. The one being clean, actually clean, and yet dying for our sins, taking the penalty for our sins. Being in a position high and lofty, and yet he doesn't demonstrate it or, or doesn't demonstrate it outright to those who ask him to do it. He has the power of the sword to bring death to any around him who oppose him. And yet he goes to the poor and the needy. And he meets their needs. The power of God is summarized in this beautiful poem. I've dissected it perhaps too much today. I'm always fearful of dissecting the word of God. I think oftentimes we pull it apart to the point where it's lost any kind of beauty and certainly any kind of life in it. Having said the things I've said and preached this, go back and read the poem multiple times this week and in all of your life and behold the beauty of God. And behold the beauty that he has given you in who he has made you to be.
The words of Mr. Rogers are, are beautiful in this respect. I love you because of who you are. Those are the words of God. I have made you for this purpose. Don't desire somebody else's life. Don't be haughty. Reconcile with your father and mother if at all possible. Come to the end of the day and be able to say, it's enough. It's enough, God. You've given me enough. Enter into life with that humility and see, see what kind of beauty might flourish in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, to look on you is too beautiful than what we can possibly endure as sinful creatures who have said to you over and over, we don't need you, I don't need you, I can handle this, I don't want you, I don't want your commandments, they seem burdensome to me. Father, will you help us to experience the freedom the freedom of an eagle in the sky in its natural place, the freedom of a serpent on a rock or a ship in the sea or a husband or wife with their spouse. Don't take us out of these elements that you have made for us, but help us to experience them in new, redeemed, restored refreshed ways, even today. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus that's at work in us. Amen.